When I was in college, I led a house church on Wednesday nights in a town about an hour away for college and career folks and early married folks. So I was giving a rousing talk. I imagine that it was a rousing talk. Hearts were broken, worldviews shattered. And in that talk, I referenced one of my favorite films, which is no doubt a film that many of you have enjoyed over the years or found to be on the list of your favorite films, Casablanca. You know that great story, don't you? Rick, played by Bogey, is a cynical American who's been left by the woman of his dreams. She left him in the rain at a train station in Paris, France, with just a note. As the rain falls on the note, the ink smears. It's beautiful. The cinematography is romantic. Everything about it's romantic. And he is heartbroken as he's now in the seedy underbelly of French Morocco running Cafe, Rick's Cafe Americana. And there he helps people. Uh, get out of town before the Nazis come in, and he takes advantage of folks. And then she comes walking through his doors, the love of his life, Elsa. And he says that great line about, of all the gin joints in all the world, this movie has got it all. I mean, watching him chain smoke and drink gin is romantic. It just looks good on camera. There he is, angry and grief-stricken and upset and resentful that she left him. But why did she leave? Well, she discovered that her husband, Victor Laszlo, who is leading the European resistance against the Nazis, was not dead as she presumed, but he was in fact alive. And so she shows up with him. Rick is angry. What to do? What to do because their love was real. What to do? Well, at the end of the film, you know how it goes. And if you suffer a spoiler of Casablanca, I'm afraid that that's out of bounds. You've had your time to watch it. There at the very end of the film, Rick does the selfless thing, lets this woman of his dreams go with her husband, she has her heartstrings pulled for Rick, but she is dutifully going with her husband, who's nothing short of a hero against the Nazis in Europe and now Northern Africa. And they fly off, and then he looks to the corrupt police officer and says, Well, Louis, I'd say this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And as they wear raincoats and carry little guns, it's all romantic, it's all beautiful. At the end of my talk, a lot of the people in the room confessed that they had never seen this movie. We should get together and watch it. So that Friday night over at my folks' house, we gathered a bunch of us to watch it, and we went through it all. And my heart sings with joy as I'm seeing all these images and hearing all the quotes that we've pulled from this out of our culture and then we watch and go through all those, uh, the names scrolling at the end when we watch the credits. And I look around the room and say, well, what do you think? And almost everybody just blurted out, 
didn't like it. I said, you may take your leave. What do you mean you didn't like it? It's Casablanca. Someone said, well, it didn't have a happy ending. What do you mean? Well, I, I wish it had a happy ending. Everyone likes a happy ending. What would have a happy what would a happy ending look like here? Well, of course, the two lovebirds would be together. The heroine and the hero would ride off into the sunset somehow justly. But that doesn't happen. Everyone was expressing frustration over this desire for a happy ending and not receiving what they wanted. And I thought to myself, why do we like happy endings in our culture? Is it because we're Americans and by our nature we like and believe in happy endings that you can be anything you want to be as long as you work hard enough and you have the right connections. You can be anything as long as you pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Fun fact, you actually can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Also, nobody I know has been a success without the help of someone else, but we like our stories, don't we? You could say we're romantic about them. It is true there's been a tremendous amount of opportunity being an American citizen. Maybe it came through the New Deal, or maybe it's because we all live in post-World War II America. I know there's a lot of times of before and after in our world, but the war effort changed everything. There was never such a thing as a suburb until the war. And you certainly weren't having trucks ship mangoes to Atlanta, Georgia before the war. The economic boom to our country has been exponentially growing ever since World War II. Or maybe it's because we've all lived in the wake of September the 11th, 2001, where our president said that our enemy is evil. Like the concept of evil is our enemy. And you know, because you sat in storytelling classes in college, that good always triumphs over evil. Isn't that right? Well, maybe it's because it's wrapped up in our religion. Maybe some of you practice a kind of Christian faith that is all about the happy ending. Or, or maybe that, that is just what you've heard from Sunday to Sunday. It's that escapist religion that says it really doesn't matter what we do here and now so long as we have the right morals, we can say the right things, we can ask for forgiveness enough, we can sit in the right church with the right name on it, however you want to conceive of it. That our hope is some sort of pie in the sky, by and by, that I'll float away one day and shed this mortal coil to some ethereal, white, floaty place called heaven that, to be honest, none of us really want to go to because we can't imagine how it would be fun to worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we like it better than the alternative, don't we? 
I remember being at a family reunion, sitting around a fire late at night, and somebody who had married into our family who every opportunity they could expressed to me how they weren't church people. That was just their nice way of saying, I love you, Jared, don't try to preach to me. Because, you know, I'm not a church person. I don't even know what that means anymore, but that's what they would always say. So I kept my distance of faith talk around them. And now around this fire, they sat there in mourning, heartbroken because they had lost a loved one. You ever feel the sting of loss? No matter what you believe, even the most ardent of atheists struggle with the haunting that happens in those moments of life and death. We are haunted with the idea of transcendence, with something more. And I remember saying all the good words I had for this person, and it wasn't much. I said, we're on your team. I love you. Somebody else around that fire wanted me to say more. Now this person, to my knowledge, hadn't been in church for about 25, 30 years, but likes to identify as a Christian, likes to identify as one who will have a hope of this heaven place where the loved ones that you love, when they die, they'll end up there and he said, well, come on, tell, tell her about heaven. Tell her about how her loved one's in heaven. Tell her about if she, she is the right kind of person, she'll get away from here and go to heaven, away from all the pain. I couldn't say that. There is so much of how we represent our Christian religion that is reducible to that, and that's a shame. So we turn our attention to St. Paul this morning, who writes one of the most profound letters to a church in Rome that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. And in this profound letter, he tells them at the outset, you can boast. Now, usually you don't think of boastfulness as a good thing in the Christian faith. But he says you can boast because... You have been justified before Jesus. You have been made righteous because of Jesus. And now there's peace between you and God. The language is confusing because we use this word justified, which is sort of legal, sort of forensic language. Like we tend to think about how somebody has broken some law. And now the person who's broken that law has to pay for that law. And the old story goes that we're not good enough to pay for the laws that we break, and so Jesus, who is good enough, takes our place. Well, that might be part of it, but you see, there's more to it than that. Here, St. Paul reminds the people that you can boast because of what Jesus has done for you. And what has Jesus done for you? Well, if you have no other words, you can at least grasp this. There is something about what Jesus has done that has made it possible for you and for me to come near to God and have peace with God. There's something about what Jesus has done that doesn't just pay a legal debt. There's something about what Jesus does on behalf of God and to us and for us 
that heals and reconciles that which was broken. I remember being a kid playing baseball in a, a yard of a friend. He hit the ball, and that ball went up to the second floor of the neighbor's house, and you heard it, the crashing of a window. Now, to be honest with you, myself and my friends, we did the only thing a sane, moral person would do. We ran away, hoping that he would take all the blame. Well, he went to the person's door, and we were really shocked to hear this. Instead of running away, he went right to the door, knocked on it. Neighbor opened the door. And he said, I hit a baseball through your window. Now something besides the window had been broken here. There is now a brokenness of relationship of some type between this person and the neighbor. Instead of running away, he extended his hand and said, I will pay your win for your window, and if I can't afford it, I will work it all. You see... This person had been justified, been made right before their neighbor. And peace is now capable to take place between the two. A peace, a reconciling peace that runs deep. Paul says to the church, you can boast because you didn't do anything to get it on your own. You, you can boast because God has worked in you and for you through Jesus to give you peace again with me. But it's actually not that part of the text that I want to reflect on this morning. I want to reflect on what follows. And in what follows, Paul says that you can boast more. You can boast, church, about your suffering, about your pain, about your heartache. Why? Well, let's just talk about the reality for a second that our faith never tells us that we're just going to easily escape pain. Our religion really, from cover to cover, as we look at the seminal story, never tells you, ah, if you follow the ways of God, you're going to get out alive. Or you're going to get out unscathed from life. No, life's going to hurt you along the way. You're on a pilgrim path, and you sometimes trip over loose stones, and sometimes, sometimes you trip over your own feet. And sometimes you get attacked or pushed in from, from those outside of you, and sometimes you can't walk any further. And sometimes the walk is straight uphill, and sometimes the walk is beautiful and serene, and sometimes. It's amongst thorns and thickets. St. Paul says, you can boast. You can boast about your suffering, but yet I stop again to ask the question, why? Why can we boast about this? Is Paul a masochist? Does he delight in pain and want us to practice the kind of life where we delight in our pain and we get to brag about it, my pain is worse than your pain sort of thing? 
No, he knows that something happens to us. He says that when we go through trials, endurance is produced in us. You see, going through the pain can produce something more. It can make you more mature. It can make you stronger. It was not Kelly Clarkson who said, it was Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, who said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And he's right for that point. And we know this all too well. In the early 2000s, I was studying jujitsu with my brother's girlfriend's father. I know, weird, right? But good family friends. And we did jujitsu, and he was a physical trainer, so everything he did with me, he was always pushing me to run further, to run faster, to lift more, to when we were rolling, which is sparring language for jujitsu, to to not easily tap when you're in uncomfortable situations. And the thing is, is this man is a cartoon character of himself. You ever met somebody who's kind of a cartoon version of themselves? That was him. So he used to say things in funny ways. He used to give you that hard medicine in funny ways, so you take it with a giggle and smile on your face. And I remember he'd say, Jared. Yeah, that's how he talked to me. Like sometimes at night I still hear that voice. I think I'm being haunted by him. Jared. He said, Jared, pain is weakness leaving the body. Boy, I wanted to hit him every time he said it. You've heard it before. You've seen it on a t-shirt. Pain is weakness leaving the body. I don't know if like biologically that's true, but I do know this. When you exercise your muscles, when you lift weights, you and I both know the muscle breaks down and it builds back stronger. Something is produced through the pain of life. You see, for Christianity, suffering is an opportunity. I want you to say that with me so I get it further in your mind this morning. For Christianity, suffering is an opportunity. Let's say it. For Christianity, suffering is an opportunity. One of my best friends called me up not long ago. He's leading a theological book club, and he was really bothered by part of the conversation. He thought he'd pick my brain about it. They were reading about suffering and evil. And he said one young woman who barely has lived adult into her adult life, she's barely out of college, she said uh, that she would just assume not exist than to live in a world where there is suffering. She would just as assume not exist rather than living in a world where there's suffering. I thought, man, life must be really hard for her because it's filled with suffering. Somebody else whose husband and father said that he would have assumed to not have children. He would have preferred not having children than to bring them into a world where suffering exists. And he said, well, what would you say to these folks? And I was firing off the most sarcastic, sardonic responses. I was caught way off guard by what they had to say, and I was just picking it apart. He goes, no, no, man, seriously, I got to talk to these people. I have to talk to them. Give me something if you have anything at all. 
And I thought about it for a moment. So, you know, I think there's an error that many of us make. We think that our religion is all about the finish line. Our religion is all about that peace and justification, all the good bits of the story. Maybe that's not what our faith is about at all. Maybe our religion, that, that which binds us back, maybe our religion, that which we rewrite, maybe the point of it is the journey. Maybe the process of going through a life of ups and downs, hills and valleys, joys and, yes, sorrows, is the whole point. Because maybe the point isn't escaping. Maybe the point is growing up. Maybe the point isn't escaping. Maybe it's growing up. Speaking of suffering, there's a Japanese theologian named Kosuke Koyama. Uh, Reverend Brooks and I are reading this book together where uh, he's reflecting on life after World War II and the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He was only uh, a, basically a, a young teen when the bombings took place. And as he talks about it, he, he writes this in the wilderness. And see, that's where we all are. We're in the wilderness. In the wilderness, we are all called to go beyond protection from danger religion and happy ending religion. There we are called to a trust in, in God religion. Because we replace the happy ending with something real. We replace it with hope. Makes me think of that film Casablanca. Who says it doesn't have a happy ending? Sure, the hero and heroine don't end up together, but what we have is two people who chose duty over the moment's romance. They choose responsibility to the wider world rather than their private happiness. They choose hope in the world of fragments and pain. They choose hope over momentary happiness. If we do it right, our religion help us, helps us to see the world rightly, even our suffering, where we can rewrite the narrative in the narrative that God has given us.